Good evening, comrades, friends. The People School tonight, People School for Marxist Leninist Studies, the class tonight, is continuing and finishing an excellent book written in 1932. The name of it is The Meaning of Social Fascism, its historical and theoretical background. And the author is extremely interesting. The same author who, in 1943, 11 years later, helped dissolve the Communist Party. This was 1932, before he was in prison. It's Earl Browder, the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the United States of America. This was written before the Seventh Common Turn, which direction changed. This was in 32, and you'll see the difference because the reality changed later on after the fascist uprising in Spain. That same period is when the line changed. So this is called The Meaning of Social Fascism by El Brada. This was based on a lecture given at the Workers' School Forum in New York City in December of 1932. We started it last week and we're going to finish it tonight. It deals with the term social fascism, which you don't hear anymore. Nobody talks about it. Basically, the thesis is as follows. The people that lead the way to fascism are the social fascists. That's the thesis. And he goes into the discussion of fascism what is the definition of fascism? And as Marx said in 1850, the capitalists, when they reject general election suffrage movement, which before they allowed it, now when they stop doing that, that's when they change the dictatorship of the ruling class, of the capitalists, which is draped in civil liberties, they changed that to open fist of metal, no more of the velvet glove, and they come down on the working class. That's the definition, which is basically the definition of Georgi Dimitrov in his excellent book called United Front Against Fascism, War. So I'm going to start this from where we left off and talked about the role of the Socialist Party in the 30s. should remind everyone that the Socialist Party in the 30s was equivalent to the Communist Party in 2020 by the role they played. And so this book, all you have to do is change the Socialist Party to the Communist Party today, and you'll see what the author is saying. Masses that follow the Socialist Party begin to turn to the Communist Party. When that happens, the capitalists bring forward their fascist organization. And for the time being, the Socialist Party tries to regroup its form by passing over to the role of loyal opposition. Interesting. Who is the loyal opposition in our country today? It's called whatever's out of power. Right now it's the Democratic Party. They play the role of loyal opposition. And the Socialist Party supports the loyal opposition. It's important that we read this to see how far things have changed in the old CP because they're pushing just recently, they had another article praising the vice presidential candidate of Biden named Harris, I think the first name is Carmelo, or I don't remember the first name, but the last name is Harris. And they're pushing her now, the CP, and it's really interesting how the same thing happened before. And that's why the Communist Party was born, to break away from that loyal opposition support. And here we are, 70 years later, with the same problem, only this time... We have the Party of Communists, who are the ones that are taking the role that the CP played in the 30s. Okay, 
What is our definition of fascism? Quote from the book. First, it must be understood that fascism grows naturally out of bourgeois democracy under the conditions when capitalism begins to decline. Look what's going on around us right now. It is only another form of the same class rule, the dictatorship of finance capital. Only in this sense can we say that Hitler executives were of finance capital. The same thing, however, could be said of every other executive of every other capitalist country. To label everything capitalist, as some people on the left do, to label them fascist, results in destroying the distinction between the different forms of capitalist rule. If we should raise these distinctions to a level of difference in principle between fascism on one side and bourgeois democracy on the other, this would be following in what we call reformism or social fascism. But on the other hand, to ignore entirely this distinction would be tactically stupid, would be an example of ultra-leftism. The growth of fascist tendencies, like look around us today, is a sign of the weakening of finance capital. It is a sign of the deepening of the crisis, a sign that finance capital, monopoly capital, can no longer rule in the old form. It must turn to the more open and the brutal and terroristic method, not as the exception, but as the rule. In other words, an exception is sometimes the police go amok and they go nuts. That's what they call an exception. But this is now the rule. Police are doing this as a rule. In every area of the country where the people are protesting, the cops are using the most updated military equipment. It is a preventive counter-revolution, an attempt by the capitalists to head off the rise of a revolutionary upsurge of the masses of people. Third, fascism is not NOT, a special economic system, the way they taught us in school, comrades. Its economic measures go no further in modification of the capitalist economic forms than all the capitalist classes before us did. The reason for the existence of fascism is simply to protect the economic system of capitalism, which means what we're really talking about is the economic protection of private property. That's what it comes down to. In the means of production, on the basis of the rule of finance capital. The last thing is very interesting. Fascism comes to maturity, develops with the direct aid of social democracy, what we are calling social fascism. The parties of what we call the Second International. Who are those elements within the working class that we describe as social fascists? because of the historic role they are now playing. But now we have communist parties who have become social democratic, like in Japan, the United States, France, under a mask that they wear of, quote, unquote, we oppose fascism. They, in reality, paved the way for fascism to come to power. They disarm the working class by a theory of, quote, the lesser evil. That should sound familiar to everybody on this phone call. They tell workers that they will not be able to seize and hold power, that they create distrust in the revolutionary role by attacking the memory of the Soviet Union. They throw illusions, myths of democracy around them as forces of fascism begin to rise. They break up the international solidarity of the whole working class. They carry this under what? A mask. And guess what the mask is called? Marxism or socialism? Very interesting. In a, this country, that role was played 
by people like Norman Thomas in the Socialist Party and by the leadership of the American Federation of Labor. And I'm going to stop there and ask any questions. If any of you are interested in the split between the Socialist Party and the Communist Party back in the day and why they differed on positions and which ones they did differ on, I would recommend 15 Years of the Communist Party by Alexander Bittleman. It lays it out really well. I just want to add to that. Alexander Bittleman was one of the founders of the Communist Party of America. Thank you. I had a question regarding the idea that fascism grows as a reaction to a revolutionary movement. I believe later on in the book, they say something about people will say that communism causes fascism. So I was Correct. wondering what the difference was. Yeah, I know the paragraph you're talking about. The Socialist Party, Norman Thomas, was quoted in the pamphlet as saying that the reason why we have fascism is because of the communists. Because the communists push the people to fascism. That's the thesis that Norman Thomas gave. Very different from the one that the communists take. Here's what he wrote in 1932. Quote, Communism, I am sure, whatever its intentions, is now playing into the hands of fascism by continually discrediting bourgeois democracy and by insisting on the inevitability of ruthless dictatorship and of great violence. So here he says, when we talk about dictatorship of the proletariat, all we mean is that the majority of people, 99.9%, they should have control of society, not the wealthy 1%. So he's attacking us for that, Norman Thomas. He said, nothing could be better calculated to scare, to scare the timid into the arms of fascist saviors who talk about law and order and security. That is a certain amount of truth in that. Trump is using the uprisings by the people on the issue of Black Lives Matter and the excesses of those demonstrations. There are excesses led by dubious forces. Who knows who they are? Burning down, for example, the AFL-CIO building, attacking churches. That's not what the people who are protesting what happened to Floyd, the gentleman in Minnesota who was murdered. So there is a certain amount of truth in that. However, they don't state the rest of that sentence. And the rest of the sentence is that the communists are not the ones who talk about violence. It's the state and the right-wing forces around fascism that have historically did violence. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, thank you. I'd just like to add a statement to give more historical context to what we're talking about. A prominent German playwright and poet by the name of Eugene Berthold Friedrich Brecht, who was a member of the Communist Party in Germany before Hitler's rise to power, has this quote to say about the situation at the time. Comrades, do get it into your heads. This quote-unquote lesser evil, which year after year has been used to keep you completely out of the fight, will very soon mean having to stomach the Nazis. And this was a quote by him under his essay, When the Fascists Kept Getting Stronger, circa 1930. Well, I want to thank you for that. Again, Bertolt Brecht, the rest of the party comrades should know who he is. Bertolt Brecht, he was a German playwright. He was responsible for the Three Penny Opera, if you ever heard of it, and a song that came out of the Three Penny mm -hmm. Opera in the 30s was called Mac the Knife. If anybody who's older than 40 remember that Mac the Knife was a song produced by Bobby Darin, a famous singer during the 60s, 70s, and it's called Mac the Knife. And it comes from the Three Penny Opera by Bertolt Brecht. 
Thank you for that. My question has to do with terminology. Earlier, Bradder says that if we call everything fascism, then we're making a mistake. Correct. Uh, and then we get into these social democrats, reformists, loyal opposition, and calling them the social fascists, which, like, I see how they are that. But at what point do they stop being simply ineffective, milquetoast reformists? And when do they become actively aiding and abetting fascism and fully becoming social fascists? Or is there okay. or is there just always that? Okay, I could briefly go into the history. Why did we use that term? Well, in the Weimar Republic, everybody should remember, the 1930s, the Weimar Republic lasted until Hitler won the election, I think it was in 32 or 33. It still stayed Weimar Republic. I think it was a year later it actually changed to the Third Reich. But the Weimar Republic happened during a period of time because World War I ended. The soldiers came home from Germany, unemployed. They were the basis, by the way, for Hitler. In 1922, the Hall, Push, they call it, which they tried to overthrow the Weimar Republic. But the leadership of the Weimar Republic was the Social Democratic Party. And they allowed a group called the Freikorps to murder the leaders of the Spartacist League that were... The Spartacist League was the beginning of the Communist Party in Germany. And people on this phone call should remember the name Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebnick. They were the ones that were murdered by the Freikorps, and it was under the realm of the Ebert Schneiderman government of social democrats. So we use the term social fascist. We mean that they are preparing by their actions they're preparing for the real fascists to come into power. They really didn't know how to stop fascism, social democrats. They don't. And many times they excuse, defend fascists. So it's a period of time that it happens slowly. For example, what is the difference on a certain level? What is the difference between a Biden and what he did in the Ukraine and a Trump in what he did in Syria. There is a difference. But what is the difference? Is it basic? Are they both protecting American economic imperialist interests? And of course the answer is yes. It's obvious to everyone that they are. But they do about it differently. So this idea of lesser evils that we're talking about, I still hear it today. The point is, somebody said along the line, the lesser evil is itself evil. The very idea of a lesser evil is itself evil. Yeah, it's when the fascists show up, the social democrats become the social fascists because they can't stop. Yeah, that's a time when it happens. Who are they defending? Who are they opposing? And that's the demarcation. Okay, I'm going to go on reading now. The social democrats absolve the capitalist class, when they use fascist terror. And they make it appear that it's a measure of self-defense against communists. The communists are provoking because they're opposing the capitalists on the street. They're provoking. Therefore, the capitalist class has its self-defense. And this is the situation according to Thomas and the Social Democrats. And this is on page 16. The poor, poor capitalists, they're thus being incited by the merciless communists who have had no regard for the sincere efforts of capitalists to carry on their robbery of the working class in a more democratic manner. Now you can see how facetious this statement is. Naturally, if the communists insist on frightening people by their talk of dictatorship, that is how history is made, according to the socialist Norman Thomas. And that is how the American socialist Thomas helps 
the capitalists make history. Obviously, such arguments as this are only a brazen apology for the offensive, offensive launched against the workers by the capitalists themselves, who dominate the life of the economy of the entire country. The absurdity, the hypocrisy of such logic are apparent when we consider that neither the revolutionary movement nor fascism would ever arise if there were no capitalist system. The reason why we have the communist industry is to oppose the capitalist system. In a word, if there were no exploitation by the capitalists, if there was no oppression by the capitalists, if there was no misery and starvation caused by the capitalists, if there were no monopolies of the means of production and the conditions of life by a small class of capitalists, then there would be no class struggle. No need, on one hand, for the workers to fight for the right to live against poverty, against unemployment, and against war. And on the other hand, for the capitalists to resort to every form of violence and every physical attack against workers and their organizations. In order to maintain the capitalist profit and their rule of exploitation. This argument that social and liberals, you could say liberals for another word for this, merely mean that if the workers starved quietly and did not resist the capitalist offensive of wage cuts, of unemployment and terror, allowing the capitalists to get out of the crisis at the expense of who? The workers then the capitalists would not have recourse to open forms of oppression and violence. Of course not. But it is evident that such advice is the logic of the robber rather than the victim. To blame the communists for the capitalist attack in fascism as if the communists were the robbers holding up a person were to accuse the victims of interfering with the robbery and forcing him to use his gun in order to carry out his robbery. This is the logic. It might be well said that the robbed person was responsible for the robbery. On the basis of such thinking, it might be said with equal force that the communists are also responsible for the exploitation and the oppression of masses of people by the capitalist class. This is the same logic. It has the same political meaning when Norman Thomas accuses the party of inciting race riots. By the way, the CPUSA today has the same logic. Those who call for revolution are the reason why we have fascism coming up. That's the logic that comes out of them. The very fact they read Lenin and they leave out all discussion of revolution, what does that tell you? How the hell do you read Lenin by eliminating Lenin's words on revolution? How do you do that? Thomas accuses the party of inciting race riots. What does this mean? If the slogan of self-determination for African Americans is wrong, because the white landlords in areas of the country will resist it, then the demand for any kind of equality for blacks is equally wrong. It is the argument of a traitorous pacifism, which Lenin was not, which is the political content of social fascism. It is the argument for the submission to the rule of the capitalist class. An argument to set as our goal only those demands which we can gain by peaceful persuasion than changing the heart of the kindly capitalist landlords. Think about that same view today, comrades. What are they telling us? Well, if we only vote 
with someone like Bernie Sanders, we will get some reforms. We will still keep capitalism, however, but we'll get some reforms. That's the message that's coming out of 23rd Street in Manhattan of the CP. In a speech delivered during the election in 1932 in San Francisco, here's what the Socialist Party said. If we are to keep class strife from becoming literally class war in a country of 13 million unemployed, listen to what he's saying, there is no time to lose. It is the one hope of orderly and peaceful social change that I have been so insistently pushing the socialist program, and the socialist organization of America. He says it right there. Our job is to stop class war. Our job is to save capitalism. That's the message of social democracy. And that's why we call social democracy social fascism. On the issue of American imperialism, on page 19, chapter 4, we should point out that the American Socialist Party and our leaders in the unions like Morris Hillquit and Norman Thomas endorse and support every step in the development of German social democracy, including the election of Hindenburg. Now let me tell you who Hindenburg was. In Germany, when the class was dividing between the left and the right, there were many groups in the conservative movement. One of them was Hitler's group, but there were other groups. So what they did is they pushed Hindenburg, who was a representative of German authority of the empire. That's who we represented. That kind of mentality, imperialism. They supported and endorsed, meaning the social democrats, Every step in the development of the Labour Party in England, or if they made any little reservations, it was some kind of reservation that socialists of one country always make about the socialists of another. Furthermore, when the imperialist masters have quarrels, German capitalists versus English capitalists, it is always reflected in the quarrels among the socialists also. Those socialists in Germany supported their leadership over the English government, the capitals in England. I'll just read this last sentence by the New York Times article on Norman Thomas in 1917, all right, February. Socialism in the United States will not, N-O-T, handicap the U.S. government by strikes. In other words, we're going to outlaw strikes. The people who claim they're socialists would not push the strikes. If the armies are raised by conscription, which means a draft, we will have to serve as other citizens serve. I do not believe that socialists will advocate any general industrial strike to handicap the government in its war preparation. Can you believe what we're reading just now? And I do not believe that there will be any such strike. That's the social democratic message to a country that's going to war. Look at what we did in the 70s when I was involved with the anti-Vietnam War movement. The Communist Party and the Soviet Union were both aiding the Vietnamese Communist Movement, the National Liberation Front, which was called the Viet Cong by the Western media. Communists here support, in fact, the first three soldiers to refuse, refuse, refuse to go to Vietnam. Two of them were communists. One of them was a guy named Johnson. He was a black comrade, and his parents were in the party. And the other one was called Mora. I think his first name was James, who I knew his sister. His mother was Grace. I knew them in the party. And his sister was Elena Mora. So at that time, that's what we did. 
today, I don't know what they would do there at 23rd Street, but according to their record, I could see where they would be going. So I'm going to stop it right there. Any questions? All of what you're saying is correct. But fascism changes over time. How in the world are we going to combat the rapid changes that they do? It's like they change underwears every five seconds. So how in this day and age would we go against a rapidly changing of fascism and rapidly growing of fascism with knowing Earl Browder's work and knowing these different works. How are we going to attack something that is ever-changing? I would say, well, one, keep up with educational, because even if it's ever-changing, it's only going to change so much. It's still, at its very base, going to be the same thing as always been, so it's very important to stay educated on that. Be aware of the changes, watch what they do, study them, and we also have to constantly be changing. I mean, if we're communists, we believe in dialectical materialism, which contradictions and changes and things are constantly moving, so we have to be too. Okay, I'm going to try it. My experience is those who are always saying it's different today. It's not the same world. Things have changed. I'm always weary about that, people who say that. Because the next thing out of their mouth usually is, not always, but usually is, because things have changed so much, we got to forget about what they did in the past, and we have to have a new thing today. I think we should study what we did before, and it succeeded, and try the same things today. For example, the definition of fascism. I think it's dangerous if we constantly say everything is fascist so that when the real fascism comes, no one is going to listen to us because like the boy who cried wolf so many times, when the wolf finally came, nobody listened. And you know what the rest of that story is. So we have to know the difference. We may not find an answer tonight, by the way. That doesn't mean there is no answer. We may not find it tonight. but. In my understanding, if we study what the past did, we can present the same alternatives today. The reason why we read The United Front, which I don't know how many people have read here by Dimitrov. I have a funny feeling a lot of people have not read it. Dimitrov lays out a plan to defeat fascism. So I urge people to read that book, and then if they have any questions, bring it to the school. For all the support that Bernie Sanders got, I mean, he was a social democrat, but even as a social democrat, he was still in support of U.S. imperialism. He was just willing to get a few more worker concessions. That's really all. But as far as the state line on imperialism, he was, he was willing to work right along with everyone else. And what was weird is that a lot of other socialists would kind of throw that under the rug as though that wasn't terribly important. So that tradition of social democrats supporting war when true socialists would not, is still kept up to this day. Thank you. I'm kind of confused, I guess. So I find it contradictory a little bit that Earl Browder says that we shouldn't label fascists too much, but then he referred to the New Deal as fascist when later the Communist Party supported the New Deal. And then, I guess that's not a question, but my question is, so like I get why the SPD in Germany and the Free Corps I get why that can be called social fascism, but in America, at the same time, the New Deal was a series of social democratic reforms that were, I think, progressive. At what point do we support those, and then at what point do we kind of abandon them and refer to them as fascists? Good question. Good question. That's a good question. And I've answered this myself many times. I've studied this. In the early 30s, when Roosevelt came into office, Remember, he came out of the capitalist class. It was only like 10 years that the CP was around. We had our own candidate that we ran for office. It was a guy by the name of an African-American vice president by the name of Ford, James Ford, and William Z. Forster. 
we did not support Roosevelt the first time around. Our analysis was thus. We were comparing Roosevelt to what was going on across the ocean in Germany. And the first thing the Germans did, the Nazis did, was to create something called, don't know the name in Germany, but it was a program that took young Germans who came back from the war and put them in camps in the forest to fix up the parks, to deal with nature, fix up the streams, etc. And what was going on in this country at the same exact time? Under the issue of the economic situation of capitalism, we had large numbers of unemployed, just the way Germany did. And the way Roosevelt dealt with it immediately was to set up something called the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, which looked identical to what the Germans were doing. The same exact thing. That's number one. The famous German eagle holding a swastika in a certain position that was in Nuremberg after the war was blown up. If you study that architecture carefully, it is the identical position and eagle holding arrows and something called the fasci, which came from Italy and Mussolini. That is the symbol. If you look at the dime, I don't know if anybody looked at an old dime. We have it on our old dime. It's the reeds tied together by material, and at the top there's a hatchet. If you look, study your dime, the old dimes, you'll see it. That was the symbol of fascism in Italy. Now, what we did here, we set up something called the NRA. The symbol of the NRA was the eagle, the same eagle, Instead of holding a swastika, it was holding the symbol of the Italian fascist. Could you understand why, to many communists, it looked like they were similar, almost identical, to what Hitler was doing to fix the economy in Germany? I don't know if you see it. Look at it through the eyes of the time, not through 2020. Look at it through the eyes of the time. Thank you. So I know you were with the old CP for quite a while, so could you shed light as to when the old CP just started going more into social democracy versus communism? It depends who you talk to. If you talk to the ultra-left, it happened after 53. If you talk to the Maoist, people that follow Enver Hoxha, if you talk to them, that's their analysis. That is not my analysis. That's not the analysis of those of us who were in that party, the CP. We feel that happened during the beginning of Gorbachev, 85, with perestroika. That was the beginning of social democracy. And then, after the counter-revolution succeeded in 91, all hell broke loose in the communist movement. Many parties dissolved themselves in 1991-92, throughout the world, they said, it's over with, socialism is over with, communism is over with, we're going to accept what we call crumbs and scraps, not talk about violent uprising against the oppressor. So that happened, in my opinion, it started in 1986, and it developed until 91, when there was a split, and a group called COC, Committees of Correspondence, that still exists. People are taking notes. You should be writing this down so you could study it on your own. Committees of Correspondence that were led by Angela Davis, the famous Angela Davis. The position of the COC was that the party was too close to the Soviet Union and that Gorbachev was correct in restructuring the economy away from centralized planning. So these people that left in 1991, they left, and many of the leaders of the party left. Herbert Aptaker, who was a party historian. James Jackson, African-American leader of the party. Angela Davis, of course, I mentioned. And also a woman by the name of Atkins. 
Atkins, and that's a famous name to look up because Alita in the people's world is a guy named Atkins. I don't know this for sure, but I would not be shocked if there was a relationship. That was his grandmother or something. I would not be surprised because that name, I haven't seen it too often in the communist history. So that's when they changed. Comes 2000, Gus Hall dies, and what they do immediately, they come out with a statement called Reflections on Socialism. Reflections on Socialism by Sam Webb, in which he then says, the Soviet Union was never socialist. Can you believe this statement? It was post-capitalist. Not socialist, post-capitalist. So the revolution in 1917 wasn't a real socialist revolution. Lenin wasn't really a socialist revolutionary because they did not set up socialism. They set up something called post-capitalism, not identified as socialism. And that lasted until from 2000, Webb came in, and it lasted until about 2005 or 10, when they went more to the right. By 2012, they got rid of their newspaper. They liquidated. It's called liquidationism. They liquidated their newspaper, their political, ideological magazine called Political Affairs. They sold all their bookstores. Can you imagine that? Those that were in their college campuses that recruited literally hundreds of young people into the party. They sold all those. They then, in 1992, went into the stock market. This is all facts. So I'm just giving you the brief, brief history of how they kept going to the right, to the right, to the right. Maybe we should have a whole class on this. We did in the past, about eight years ago. Maybe we should do it again. I hope I answered something. I like what you said earlier about you saying the lesser evil is itself evil. So to combat this liberal philosophy of lesser evilism, I'm kind of under the impression that a Marxist-Leninist would believe that one day organizing and improving the material conditions of your local community is more valuable, essentially, than a lifetime's worth of participating in a bourgeois election. But I was just wondering if you had any other kind of Marxist-Leninist takes on what kind of alternatives we as Marxist-Leninists can participate uh, in to combat lesser evilism. I just want to comment on something that I heard in that question. I don't know if anyone else heard this. And by the way, we're not saying that you're wrong, but what I heard is was basically a lifetime of participating in bourgeois elections. Well, guess what? That is the Marxist-Leninist answer. It's another tool in the toolbox. We are participating in elections right now. You might not know it. We have two people running, but one, one is obviously more serious than the other for Congress. That's what they do in Greece. That's what they do in other countries. We're not going to change the system by running a candidate. It's about getting the name out there. I just wanted to clarify that all the stuff we're talking about with revolution and such does not mean that we're not participating in the, the bourgeois right, system. Right. Sorry, I, I think I misworded that a bit. but I'm going to have to go through the Ran Robin now. I guess one thing that I just find really interesting is just what a flashpoint, as far as social fascism goes, you can kind of see what a flashpoint World War One was in the first at the time, and obviously with the, with the revolution happening in the same year. And it's just interesting to see how that support for war and imperialism in that time is really the deciding factor of basically who's a fake and who's a real. You see that kind of play out today in sort of a more insidious way, I feel like, because it seems like it's more popular now with the Bernie Sanders thing to say that maybe a coup is bad or whatever, but Nobody really wants to talk about a lot of the specifics of the other ways in which we do fascism constantly, with drone strikes or sanctions or things like that aren't really talked about because it's sort of popular to admit that we're doing those horrible things. Comrades, a great class, and I really think that the social fascism is something that we have to focus on. And I just wanted to let everybody know on the call that I'm currently running for Congress as a communist and supported by the PCUSA here in Vermont, so check out our campaign. We just had an article in In Defense of Communism and in Greece, and it looks like we might get an article in Rizos Pastis as well, and two journalists are interviewing me next week. So the party is growing. 
things are dynamic and check out our campaign and continue the struggle, comrades. Thank you. I just want to mention how you were saying that America still uses the fasci symbol. It's still on the walls of our Congress on either side to this very day. Just for a little bit more history on the fasci, it originates from the Roman Empire. It's sort of like this reactionary, let's go back and make Italy great again type of thing that was going on with Mussolini. And it was adopted by a lot of people. It was adopted by a lot of liberal democracies, even before Mussolini. But Mussolini brought it as a symbol of fascism, and it's where it gets its namesake, fasci, fascism. So, anyway. Thank you. And I want to add to that. Originally, it meant authority. That was the basic meaning during the time of Caesar in Rome. It meant authority. That's correct. Thank you. The question I have is that I think it is worth also making a presentation about it. In spite of the fact that the social fabric of the army of the United States is working class, how do any president who comes to power just uses them? Right now, if we imagine a war, it is going to be a thermonuclear war, and most of the armed forces of this country will be like radioactive waste. So how do they manage to to be dragged into wars that have no relevance or significance to the armed forces in the United States Army. Okay, I'll answer this quickly. It's called economic conscription. They get it for the jobs. They actually get it for the jobs. We use the term cannon fodder. They use this cannon fodder, but they really, many of them, and we have some veterans on the phone, Maybe they want to answer it. Um, One sentence. Why do people allow themselves to be used in an army? I think it has to do with the ideology. So the ideology of militarism, I think, and like you said, the economic draft. People get bought in. They just buy into it. And then a lot of people think that there's no other options, that the army is their only way out. And a lot of people stay in the military because they're too afraid to enter the civilian labor force. I've known people that had families and they didn't want to leave because they didn't want to, they had a steady income. It wasn't a lot, but it was a steady income. And they just were scared to leave because they, they had kids and stuff. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does, more or less. I did not know that about Angela Davis, that she was a part of the COC in support of Perestroika. I think yeah. it's also interesting to note that currently she advocates that all socialist, communists, whoever, should not only vote for Joe Biden, but should also actively campaign for him using the logic of Allah the Nation and Jacobin Magazine that we can move him left once he's elected. Just an interesting thing to think about when we consider what her achievements and faults are as a communist. We touched on Biden's role in Ukraine earlier. I also wanted to point out the role that he played in Libya, the destruction of the most prosperous country on the African continent liberating it so much that he turned it into a slave society. And then I also wanted to comment that today is August 13th. It is the birthday of Comrade Fidel Castro. And I think it's a good day to remember and cherish the contributions that Castro made, not just to Cuba, but to humanity as well. The imperialists tried to assassinate Fidel Castro over 600 times. And despite the imperialist narrative, Fidel Castro was instrumental in preventing a nuclear holocaust. Thank you, Comrade. It was well put. We're talking about calling people fascists. That doesn't really get us anywhere. They're not going to believe us. My point is to say, you don't really necessarily need to do that. What you need to do is say what the U.S. military, even though it isn't fascist, is doing. You know, everybody knows that tens of thousands of Americans died fighting in Afghanistan, but you can help radicalize people and help them see the truth by saying the people that they fought against in Afghanistan, the Taliban, largely basically were created by the U.S. in the 1980s. And you can radicalize them by saying, even though it's not fascist, there's 350,000 dead Iraqis since the invasion. A literal terrorist state rose up. ISIS, Daesh, came into Syria and started slaughtering 400,000 people since the invasion. Even though it's not fascist, you can radicalize people like that. I've done that with people in the military. I've done that with my family members. I just need to bring that up. Thank you. In reference to what we were talking about earlier with electoralism as a tool for the revolutionary toolbox, not only is it a means to get our name out there, but it is what Lenin and Marx referred to as a school of struggle. 
Much like we support unions to get the workers to understand that concessions will never be enough and will rarely be handed to us, electoralism is a tool to get the workers to understand that you cannot change the system from within. Thank you. Thank you. Very well put. I want to mention to everyone a book, Bolsheviks in the Tsarist Duma, written by a contemporary of Lenin, a Bolshevik, and his name is Badeyev. So it's very interesting to me that, again, the Overton window has shifted so far away to the right to where we view somebody as Bernie Sanders as socialist. Because, again, as I touched on last week, social democracy will never be socialist based on the fact that, again, it will not exist if not for the exploitation of the third world. Thank you, Kamek. I think Stalin's writings on fascism are also really interesting because he made a similar perspective on social democracy and he made the distinction as it being disguised fascism which in his reflections on the origin and characteristic of the second world war he attributes social fascism as what allowed fascism to come into power thank you i wanted to make a book recommendation for anyone who might be interested in reading about the rise of fascism in germany and maybe looking for a historical example of how to and how not to fight it, I would recommend the book The German Revolution by, I think it's Pierre Brew. I might be getting the name wrong. It's one of the most comprehensive historical texts I've found on the subject, and I highly recommend it. That's all. All right. Thank you. That's Pierre Bruet. Bruet, actually, yeah. the historian who had first access to the Harvard Trotsky archives, a Trotskyist historian who actually proved all of Trotsky's crimes, like he wanted to prove Trotsky innocent, but he ended up proving Trotsky guilty with his letters with set off and all these things. Pierre Bourret was actually a Trotskyist who exposed Trotsky. Okay, thank you, Kermit. So does the system of social democracy and social democrats, can they fight fascism or do they automatically capitulate by their own very nature? Well, my experience, there were two types of social democrats. There's the left and the right. The left, we can work with very easily. Most of them classify themselves as on the right. Norman Thomas in the 30s, Harrington, Michael Harrington in the 70s. But I believe that there were large numbers who we can work with in a coalition. But there are the old-timers that are very, very anti-communist. You cannot work with them. You cannot work with anti-communist liberals. They're lost. They're the enemy. That's my experience all my years in the movement. And I want to thank everyone who showed up and had a lively discussion. I enjoyed it personally. Thank you all, comrades. Good night.